This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia in the United States. In a lethal progression, it kills brain cell connections and the cells themselves. It affects parts of the brain that control thought, memory, and language. In 2020, nearly 6 million Americans were diagnosed with it. When Steph Jagger learned her 67-year-old mother, Sheila, was suffering from the disease, she searched for something they could do together to buffer the impending descent. She landed on a road trip into the wilds of nature and memory. She tells the story in her new memoir, Everything Left to Remember. My mother, our memories, and a journey through the Rocky Mountains. Steph Jagger is a former record-setting skier and a coach and mentor. She is joined here by writer and editor Joyce Chen, the executive director of Seventh Wave, an arts and literary nonprofit. Their conversation touches on questions of self-care and care for others, mothering and wilderness, nature and nurture, inheritance and legacy, grief, and how to channel rage. Third Place Books, Ravenna, presented this event on May 2nd. Author Events Manager Spencer Rupti introduced the conversation. Steph Jagger is a sought-after mentor and coach whose offerings guide people toward a deeper understanding of themselves and their stories. Her work lies at the intersection of loss, the nature of deep remembrance, and the personal journey of recreation. Steph grew up in Vancouver, Canada, and now lives and works on Bainbridge Island. Everything Left to Remember is her second book. Her first, Unbound, was published in 2017. Joining Steph in conversation is Joyce Chen, who is a writer, editor, and community builder who draws inspiration from many waterlogged cities. She has covered entertainment and human interest stories for Rolling Stone, Refinery29, and People, amongst other publications, and her creative writing credits include Poets and Writers, Lit Hub, and Narratively. She is a proud Vona alum and was a 2019-2020 Hugo House Fellow. She is also the executive director of the Seventh Wave, an arts and literary nonprofit that champions art in the space of social issues. Everything Left to Remember is the story of a woman and her mother who is suffering from dementia, taking a road trip in the Rocky Mountains and revisiting the memories that made them who they are. In addition to raising important conversations about aging parents and the way we cope with sick relatives, it's a nuanced book about the complexity of Alzheimer's, a disease so universal and so devastating, it's difficult not to result to cliche when writing about it, which is what makes Steph's book so impressive. This memoir is also a beautiful nature narrative of the human mind's purest interactions with the outdoors. 
It will sweep you away, and we're very pleased to have this author with us tonight. Please join me in welcoming Steph Jagger and Joyce Chen. Spencer did a good job. Thank you, Spencer. And and thank you, Third Place Books. Um, this is such an amazing place to start the conversation off. And I'm actually going to be turning it over to Joyce to guide us through much of tonight's conversation. Thank God. But before I do that, um, you know, so much of this book is is about land and our relationship to land and nature. And so before we dive in, I really wanted to start off with um, a land acknowledgement for tonight. So we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, past and present. And with honor and gratitude to the land itself and to the Duwamish tribe, um, we're going to celebrate and honor that as we move through tonight's conversation. Um, the Duwamish means, I, I always like to look up what things actually mean, what these words and what these people's names actually mean. And it, it means people of the inside, which I just thought was such a beautiful um, translation. Um, we're also on the native lands of PCC. I understand this was like one of the original PCC. So this feels like Seattle heritage being inside of this store. I feel so lucky to be here. Steph, I'm going to take a seat because I feel like that's the coziest. And I just want to say I'm so, so honored and excited to be here with you um, to see the birth of this book. Um, I've heard little snippets of it before its actual kind of publication, but just seeing it and reading it in its full form has been just such a delight. I have a million questions. Steph knows this, um, but I'm going to try to temper myself a little bit um, for the sake of all of you in the audience. So we're not here all night. Um, so I kind of wanted to start off with a few questions and then I also want to hear your own the the book in your own voice too. Um, so the through line, I guess you could say the spine of everything left to remember is so much about that two week road trip that you took with your mother um, shortly after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And when I was reading it, I was thinking so much about the vastness of what this trip meant for you, for her, for your relationship uh, as a parent, as a child. And in this particular case, mother and daughter. Um, so I'd love to start there with the idea of mothering. Mm. Big question <laughs> to get into to start off. But the book's so obviously about so, so many of the mothers in our lives. So that could be our biological mothers, our loved ones who support us like mothers, our own role as women and nurturers, and of course, Mother Nature herself. Um, but I feel like there's also so much about the act of mothering. Mm. And so I'm curious to know kind of broad scale let's start big and then start to zoom in when you were writing this book how did you mother yourself how did you take care of yourself in writing this book she's going with the big questions first um how did i take care of myself uh with writing this book well i mean i think you can see by by a lot of people in the room who i know you know there was a there was a lot of love and support and people walking beside me and conversations and phone calls and tears and you know all of that I think the biggest way you know that any of us can think about mothering ourselves or really mothering kind of capital M whether you're a, a literal mother of children or or just mothering kind of creations into the world 
I, I think about it in regards to really this kind of larger surrender to the question of what will I allow to be created through me? So like, how do I move myself enough out of the way as a creative to allow something to come through me and to not control it or tame it forward into its creation, but instead to allow it come, to come through me and lead the way into what I will be creating. And that's a, there's, there's an unknown to that, but I think that's also part of quintessentially when I think about archetypal mother, I think about qu- quite literally the womb and creatively that's, that's a dark space where there's a lot of chaos and it's of pure potential, mm. but there needs to be a graciousness of self in the creative process to allow you, yourself to kind of stumble through that darkness, that unknown, before various different components emerge. You know, you and I were just in a beautiful, beautiful conversation through the seventh wave, actually, mm-hmm. with Ruth Ozeki. Yes. And she talked about, it was, it was different language, but I would relate it to mothering. She talked about allowing herself as a creative to fall down various different rabbit holes mm-hmm. and not worry about the connecting points of them and to instead allow yourself to get to a place where you eventually see them kind of constellate before you. And I think that's exactly what I would what I would say the process is and how I moved myself through it creatively was trying to add in as much space for surrender and unknown. And like the question, can I be surprised by my own story? Hmm. Which is an exciting place for me as a writer. Yeah. The element of surprise and also that word constellating is just forever going to be ingrained in my noggin as a way to think about creativity. Thank you, Ruth Ozeki. Thank you, Ruth Ozeki, for that that, um, term. Um, But that element of surprise, so I guess kind of piggybacking off of that, I'm curious, as you were writing the book, you're thinking a lot kind of back on this trip. Was there anything that surprised you as you were thinking back about kind of like what you're writing and and what happened in those two weeks that you didn't didn't realize in the moment, but just reflecting back, you're like, oh, okay, there's something. Yeah, I mean, certainly th- this is kind of goes to some of the specifics in the book, but certainly I was I was surprised and quite literally by the way the series of dreams constellated after the book. So there's a series of dreams that I talk about in the book that really in my mind when I was on the journey didn't didn't make sense to me at all. And even as I was in the creative process writing about them, I kept asking myself, why am I wasting my time? Why am I wasting my time writing this scene about this this dream? Like I'm not a Jungian analyst. Like I don't, you know, I don't know how these are going to fit together. But I kept feeling compelled to to go there and and eventually did stumble down a rabbit hole that really tied them all together and the symbology of all of them together in a way that that really blew my mind. I mean, I phone, I think I phoned one of the people in the audience today. I phoned her and just said, Oh my gosh, like I get it. I get what happened there. Yeah. I, I think secondly, I, I probably looking back was, you know, surprised by the volume of anger. Mm. Like I, I think I experienced it on the trip and I think I, I stumbled through it and just had, had a lot of questions about like, what is this, this kind of torrent of energy moving through my body and, and what on earth do I do with it? And I think upon reflection in the creative process was really where I began to examine on a deeper level, how do I move that up and out? How, how do mm. I process that, that, that anger? Um, 
in the, in the inside the complexity of the mother daughter relationship as well as holding all of the love. Yeah. Two things at the same time. It's, it's complex. And I want to get back to the idea of anger because that was something that felt really palpable to me when I was reading the book. Although there is a lot of love, there is a lot of grief. There are a lot of different emotions or anger felt like there was this kind of core. I'll come back to it. But first, I'm curious because I don't want to ramble on too long before hearing some of the book in your mm. words. Um, would you would you read a little passage for us? Um, I've picked something out here, if that's cool, um, that has to do with mothering. Um, and it's over on page 218. The two-hour trip started at a place called Dead Man's Bar. We floated into the boat and set off, carried slowly by the gentle flow of the water. The river itself was flanked with cottonwood and spruce forests, sagebrush plateaus up on top of the high bank. I snuggled right into my mom and put my arm around her shoulder. You warm enough? I asked. When she didn't answer, I looked into her eyes. They had a soft, liquid center. She was already watching the water. All morning long, the boat moved steadily around bars of sand and silt. We watched birds in every direction, hawks and large falcons, soared at great heights up above us. Great blue heron and white trumpeter swans waded in and swam through the water. And smaller, smaller birds, various types of swallow and dipper, flitted here and there, from the water to the riverbank before landing on long marshy reeds. We saw obvious evidence of beavers, but no actual beavers came out to say hello. That said, the hooved animals made up for it. We caught glimpses of elk, deer, pronghorn, and moose as they moved through the protection of the brush along the side of the river. Our guide relayed many interesting facts and figures about the area, just as the ranger in Grand Teton had. But I wasn't terribly interested, for I was being flooded with remembrance with the words of a language I knew but had forgotten how to speak. Things were being said in that language all around us, stories coming in on the wings of the birds, on the wind, on the river as it cut arcs through the sand on the banks. It seemed there was a whispered narrative coming in on the heartbeats of the animals walking through the, through the brush, on the scent of the pine as it warmed in the morning sun. Wisdom was pouring in the wordlessness around us not by way of the technical descriptions or statistics of the area, but on the gaps in between. It came in on the spaces. It hung like it had all my life on the things not said. I watched my mother catch wisdom with her body. I did the best. I did my best to do the same. Various forms of story, streams of information were moving through the air, through the water, through an underground network of roots and we were using our bodies in some attempt to translate it, to let the intelligence of the natural world brush up against us, to let it merge with our human nature. The goal, wrote Joseph Campbell, is to make your heartbeat match the beat of the universe, to match your nature with nature. It was a remembering, a letting alone of our cognition so as to have our senses flood with knowing. It was a forgetting of one's intellectual self so as to tune more deeply into the layers and nuance of who we really are. It was the act of pulling ancient knowing to the surface. This was a language my mother and I had always spoken. It's the language of our truest belonging, our first howls of hunger, the baying in our bones before words have had a chance to arrive. 
It is the language of our ravenous thirst, the ache of our grief and our love. I once heard the poet Marilyn Nelson talking about the importance of stories. If we erase our stories, we erase our existence, she said. As we floated down the Snake River, I thought about the wordless language, the silent discourse spoken in signs, symbols, and sensations, patterns, textures, and vibrations. This is the language of surrender, encoded inside of it, a silent vocabulary of faith. It is the wisdom of water. Women are keepers of this language, held back from traditional learning, from schools and books and science. For so long, we had to develop alternate ways to understand the world around us. We used our senses to catch information and our bodies to translate what was there. We developed a spirituality that was deeply interwoven with nature because we weren't permitted in the inner sanctums of our various religions. We developed a carnal knowledge, the type that is true to the Latin translation, a knowing from the flesh. This language, this is our mother tongue. In the midst of my mother's forgetting, she was teaching me to remember this language, to use it to re-recognize the self I had long left behind. She was teaching me not to return to her, but to return to myself, as so as to move toward the woman I have a chance at becoming. I saw my path forward. All I had to do was trust that something inside of me knew how to keep walking. I had to believe that when my mind had run its course, something inside of my body held enough wisdom to guide me, and I had to have faith that this, of all things, was my birthright. The inheritance given to me by my mother was not her story, but the ability to feel into mine. This was feminine knowing. This was my body understanding. I had nothing more to learn and everything left to remember. You almost had me crying. Yeah. <laughs> I hope this mic picks up my deep sighing because whew, um, that's, that was really beautiful. Thank you for reading that. I have a million questions to jump there, but I think one of the first things I want to ask about is you ended on this idea of inheritance. Um, and I think when I was reading the book, something that really struck me was, yeah, inheritance, but also legacy. You know, like, what is the difference between the two? They're both, you know, generational. They're both cultural. They're both the idea of passing something down to another, right? Um, so I'm kind of curious about your thoughts there in terms of what is the difference in, in your mind in terms of legacy and inheritance? Because here you're, you're talking about what you've inherited from your mother. I'm also curious about what you think her legacy is that she's leaving behind. Yeah, it's that's such a beautiful question, right? That's so nuanced, like the difference between inheritance and and legacy. You know, to me, you know me well enough to know I always go to etymology and, you know, where does a word come from? And and when I think about inheritance, I think about things that are passed down, you know, through bloodlines, either, you know, financial or DNA, you know, that anything that's passed passed that way. Yep. When I think about legacy, you know, the etymology of that word, the root of it has more to do with a, a selected or delegated person. Mm. And so to me, that implies there's more choice, like what will I carry forward? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's an important question to ask when you think about legacy, not only my mother's, but like, what is she silently asking me to carry forward? And what will I say yes to carrying forward? Mm. What are the choices that we make and what we say yes to or no to? And I think mm-hmm. out of anything, you know, my mother's legacy is is certainly, you know, as soon as I finished writing the book, yeah. I thought, my God, like she was quintessentially here to mother and this is how she will continue that work. Mm. And my choice to provide the words on the page for her to continue to do that is how we would work in tandem and move the legacy through a lineage. And I think that's much different than, you know, Mm. inheritance of freckles. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Which we both have. Yeah. So, if I'm hearing this, so legacy is a little bit more, there's more agency there in terms of what you want to leave behind, what you want to pass down. Inheritance is a little bit more freckles or, or say something that is a little bit more of body, of something that's like not agency. And that's not to say like it's not also incredible, but there's a little bit of a difference there, right? I think so. I think when you're leaving a legacy really what you're doing is you're asking other people to carry something on for you. It's Mm. not just about you and the work that you do and the ego that you may have about the work that you did while you were living, but how will this live beyond me Hmm. and what choices will I make? And really the the, the word legacy coming from who are the delegates, who will I Hmm. bring into the fold on this to help me carry that energy from one generation to the next so that we've got an entire grove of cedar as Hmm. opposed to, you know, one tree. Yeah. Oof. I'm trying to remember um, who had written the the book about the trees that speak to each other. The roots. Was it? There's there's many. There's many. I know there's, there's many. many. I'll try to remember it, but uh, that's that's kind of the image. You might I be have. thinking about the overstory. R- yes. Richard Powers, I think that yes. is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful work. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I was just like, oh, right. Just this idea of an entire network underground, just everybody speaking to each other in this way. It's it's beautiful and it gives me chills just thinking about that. Well, I think that's 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 actually circles back to part of what we were talking about in regards to like how I ended up processing rage. Like I think there was a generation of women who my mother was was in that my mother was inside of that that quite literally had to put things underground. Mm-hmm. They had to put memories, they had to put shame they had to put there were so many things that they weren't allowed to breathe life into in their own in their own lives that they had to put it underground and so when I think about just my mother and and our relationship and the things that did or didn't happen I might get angry but when I think about what was her work inside of a Mm. legacy like maybe it was to put and the things underground that needed to be protected Mm -hmm. so that the next generation could come along and and unearth them Mm. and and I think there's something quite powerful about seeing a lineage in that from that viewpoint from the long view Mm. instead of I didn't get this or that from my mother and I'm pissed about it right 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 and I feel like just hearing you use all these kind of like neat like nature terms right because like so much of the book is about what we like to call mother nature so something you and I have talked really briefly about is this idea of mother nature and like gendering nature and like what does that do like to how we understand nature for better or worse so I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts there um, because we talked about mothering and obviously if you're talking about mothering you're talking about mother nature it has different connotations yeah it's my my thoughts are 
like really unshaped around this and their seedlings, saplings, say we'll call them. I think since I finished writing the book, I've become less and less comfortable with calling the natural world or our spaces of wilderness mother nature as in applying a certain gender. I think on one hand, I think that might make it easier for us to um, become quite destructive and extractive or continue being um, Mm. uh, destructive and extractive. I think there's something to examine there. Um, I think on the flip side, it really removes the energy of what I think to be mothering that we talked about before. Can Mm. I, can I create space and have the, and be okay inside of darkness and chaos to allow new things to emerge. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's a gendered, I think men can do that too. And, mm-hmm. and, and non-identifying gender identifying folks can do that too. And so I think it, calling, calling the wilderness mother nature might mm-hmm. pull that away, that, that kind of gift away from, you know, the men and non-gender identifying people in our communities. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't know, as I said, the, my thoughts about it are, are quite unshaped, but I think, you know, why don't we just call it all what it is, which is like the feral wildness that lives outside of us as opposed to the feral wildness that lives inside of us. Mm. I'm going to start calling whatever is happening inside of me right now, the feral wildness (laughs) within me and calling everything else out there, the feral wildness out there. I love that. Okay. And um, I do want to hear more of the book in your words or in your voice, if that's all right. Um, and speaking of, we've talked a little bit about anger and how that's kind of mixed in with grief. I'd love to hear a section that feels like it has that fire and that anger. Choice wants me to get angry, everyone. <laughs> let's see. Let's see what we've got. Okay. I looked over to my mother who was standing in front of a small pile of crumpled paper. What do we do next? She asked. I couldn't find words for an answer. My body was busy, now consumed by the anger. It felt as though all of the things my mother had never said and perhaps never felt were now in a bag left for me to hold on to. Somehow, over the years, it seemed her pain had been transferred to me. And now she would get to forget about it and move on, leaving the remembering part to me. This felt like a searing kind of thaw and I didn't know what to do with the pain. All of a sudden, I felt desperate to scream. The only problem being, I no longer knew how. I felt I might shatter, might turn into a pile of shards on the ground. My mind did not contain enough knowledge to know what to do with the hot, pumping pain in my feet, in my hands, in the tips of my fingers. I was not taught how to process this feeling. I was not taught how to feel it. In fact, I was taught that it didn't exist at all. It was in that moment, matches in one hand, bag in the other, that I came to understand there was more of me living outside of myself than there was remaining inside. My essence had been replaced with anger. Pain, in any variation, never did fit into the rather rosy family picture. It was rarely shown and very rarely discussed. Space was not created in our household for anything other than silver linings and the smell of rhubarb pie. I didn't know what to do with anger, nor had I a clue about how to handle sadness, sorrow, or unbridled rage. I didn't know where any of those things fit. They did not belong on the inside of me, but there they were regardless, 
and I didn't have a clue how to go about getting them out. My first instinct was to yell at my mother, to grab her shoulders, to shake her and howl. We had kept ourselves hidden from one another for so many years, and this was our final chance, for God's sake. Could she not see that? But it was far too late for screaming, for to scream at a tiny woman with Alzheimer's would be pointless and cruel to the both of us. My second instinct was to turn it into heartwood, to pull all of it, the anger about my mother closing all of those doors, and the rage about Alzheimer's locking them shut, further into my core, to hold it there, for however long it took to run out of air, my instinct was to choke my anger with a vacuous darkness. But this was an instinct I knew better than to obey. I sensed that the pain would continue to pulse through the bloodstream, to drum through all of us if I didn't bring it to the surface of me, to the surface of us. Pain travels through families, wrote transformational coach and mother wound healer Steffi Wagner, until someone is ready to feel it. I was not interested in sharing the same path as my mother or her mother before her. An achingly slow dismemberment was a road I could not bear. And so I would have to figure out a way to bear the pain instead, to move it up and out of me, up and out of the soil I had grown from. Heartwood is not the part of the tree that pumps water through the trunk, nor does it move sugar through the branches and limbs. It's not part of the vascular system of a tree. It's the opposite. Heartwood is composed of entirely lifeless cells. It is dead. It is the hardened evidence of what was. Petrification at the core, at the innermost sanctum. A little bit of heartwood is fine. In fact, it helps to keep the tree standing. Too much of it, though, and the tree is at risk of rotting from the inside out. The choice between feeling decades, perhaps centuries of unfelt pain, or attempting to survive inside of a lineage that was being slowly erased was clear. I would not pull my anger in. I had to find a way to pull it out. I paused and looked up at the sky. As I did, a handful of memories popped into my mind, one after the other, a flip book of my childhood and adolescence. All the things by eight years old that I knew not to do. All the things by 11, I knew not to say. All the things by 14, I knew not to be. The sound of wood splitting off from itself was ringing in my ears. I have to figure this out, I thought to myself, and I have no idea where to start. Beside me, I heard my mother repeat her question. What do we do next? She asked in earnest. I don't know, mom, I said. I don't know. My aunt struck a match and held it gently underneath the wood pile. The pieces of paper in my, my mother had crumpled were the first things to catch fire. They carried the burn until the wood was ready to go, and then it all went up in flames, the incipient stage of a blaze. Okay, I'm feeling the heat. <laughs> um, I love that that's um, the passage that you're reading because when I think about anger and i think about what we've been talking about mothering and mother nature or as you as you put it kind of <laughs> you'll have to say it again the, the wild um, wild ferality what did i say something like that the feral wilderness inside of all of us the feral wilderness within and with outside of us um i think a lot about how this passage illustrates to me this idea of like the anger not just between you know yourself and your mother but just like us as humans and like the feral wilderness outside of us. I won't say mother nature, but this idea of like how 
how we can have so much rage about what's happening, but then also like how can we channel that rage and do something with it? Because I think so much of your book is about the natural world and about like our place within it, in addition to your place as daughter to mother. So kind of curious about your thoughts in terms of yeah, how do you channel that rage? <laughs> Uh, my husband's in the front row, so we could... No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, how do I channel that rage? I mean, I think some of the first things for me, really between understanding, like, what is clean anger and what is dirty anger? And I and I would really highly recommend um, Resma Menicum's book, mm. uh, My Grandmother's Hands. And, and I know that that is a book specifically focused on racialized anger, mm. but I think we need that. We need to learn that, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I think it's an excellent entryway into how we have to process what's going on inside of our bodies. Mm. I think for me, there was a a step into understanding anger that um, when I began to understand that it wasn't anger, wasn't aggression Mm. and that I can be angry about something instead of being angry at someone or Mm. something was very helpful to kind of go, Oh, this is, this is just emotion. It's energy in motion in my body. Mm. And I need to figure out ways that are not aggressive and not directive towards other people or other things that can allow that energy in motion to move through me. Mm. So I might walk in the forest and throw rocks as I go. I might scream underwater in my car. I might slam a door in my house. I might, you know, various different things to kind Mm. of move that through me. Mm. Inside of Resma Menicum's book is a quote by Susan Raffo, and I I might um, get it wrong, but it's something along the lines of um, self-care is the constant practice of ensuring more mm. pain does not accumulate. And I think that is exactly how I would go about, how I did go about moving into clearing out anger was, you know, mm. what, what, what is the bank? What is the store of this that I have accumulated? Yeah. And how do I want to move this up and out of my body? Because that's not where it's supposed to live. It's just mm-hmm. energy that wants to move through. Mm. Yeah. And what you were reading about the heartwood and how like that part's just, that's the dead part of the tree. It's necessary. It's necessary to the structure of the tree and like it being able to stand, but it can't be everything. That That's right. That's exactly it. Like it, you, the constant practice of making sure more pain, more heartwood does not accumulate. Because mm. otherwise there's this kind of rotting from the inside out. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know I want to leave some time for questions from the audience, but can I have one last request um, for a little snippet? Because it's hard to pick, I think, what are just beautiful, beautiful passages in here. But one that I really, really loved um, was actually at the very beginning of your journey together. And for folks who haven't had a chance to read this really great book yet, it might be a nice little teaser trailer into um, into the book itself. Uh, so if you will oblige, I think that is on page 40. Yes. Yeah. In the morning, we went to the grocery store to stock up on oatmeal and eggs, apples, and baby bell cheese. We got some coffee and a few cans of Campbell's tomato rice soup. My mother loved that soup. That felt like truth. But what is truth if I had to remind her of it? At about 10 in the morning, we drove out of Bozeman and made a quick stop at a small bookstore in a town called Livingston. I bought a postcard from my grandmother, something I'd always done when I traveled. She had been gone for close to six months, but I felt I had to buy one anyway. This, I thought, this is truth. But even then, I wasn't sure. 
We drove down the stretch of road that runs from Prey, Montana to the northern entrance of Yellowstone, the road that runs all the way to the Boiling River, otherwise known as Paradise Valley. A handful of miles in, I watched a spell come over my mother. I knew it took place because I watched my mother's face as it cracked wide open and burst into tears. She cried her whole way through that stretch of road on the morning we drove it. A levee, one I never knew existed inside of her, broke clean away. Have you ever been to a place that cast a spell on you? A place that sent a mesmerizing spark, a scattershot of luminescence flying through the air and right on into your bloodstream. I've been to a few of those places, but Yellowstone National Park stands out as the most magical, the most potent of portals. For me, it has something to do with the bison. They look like an answer to a prayer. Like if a person was crying and alone and they asked God to send them something or someone who understood, I think she might send a bison or perhaps a whole herd. Something that would help them run into the storm, through the clouds and the driving rain, through the electricity of it all, clear to the other side. I think perhaps that's what I'd been doing all of those years in my bedroom. I think I'd been praying for bison. There's something prehistoric about them, like they come from a time and a place where the heartbeat of everything around us could be heard, could be felt through hooves that pounded the earth. Every time I see a herd of bison, it throws me back in time and flips me forward at once, like I've been hit with some sort of reminder, an omen that I need to watch what I carry, and I need to watch what carries me. Every time I see a bison, I'm reminded that it is okay to be the one who runs into the storm. My mother cried something fierce that morning on the road, so much so, I finally pulled the car off to the side. Mom, I asked, what's happening? I was genuinely concerned she was hurt in some way. Are you okay? I went on. Why are you crying? Nerves bounced up and down in my body. I wasn't sure what to do or who to be with her in this moment. Mom, I asked again. It took her some time to find her voice, but when she did... She said three careful words. It's so beautiful. I felt suddenly calm. I didn't know. Oof. I didn't know a lifetime of thirst could be slaked with three words. I grabbed her hand and sat back in my seat. We stared out the window at the river valley brushed out before us, the mountains rising up in every direction. It was using Annie Dillard's words an infinite storm of beauty. Emigrant Peak and the rest of the Absaroka Mountains climbed up to the east of the, I might say this word wrong, Galatin, Galatin, who knows the answer? Galatin Range up to the west. Thank you. We were held in this place in between. It was a cradle, a womb made of river water and stone. And even though I couldn't see it, I knew there was a great thaw occurring right there in front of us. Somewhere in those mountains, the snow was melting. Huge volumes of water were tumbling down from the peaks, rushing right into the creeks and the streams that fed the Riverstone Valley. A thaw like that can be painful at first, an aching pulse that beats inside your fingertips. Look, she said, as if she'd never laid eyes on a river valley or been anchored somewhere in the mountains. Look at all of this nature. And with that simple incantation, the spell for our entire trip was cast. This was my mother in nature. This was mother nature. This was my mother's nature. 
I'd seen them on their own, but I'd never really witnessed them partner together. Not like this. My mother took a hitched breath in and let let a long sigh out, a sigh she was ready to keep going. I checked for traffic and slowly pulled the car back onto the road. About six or seven miles later, I felt my mother lean in slightly toward my right shoulder. I've been here before, she whispered. This, of course, was not true. But who was I to say who my mother was, what her truth was, where she had or had not been? Ugh. I, I told Steph uh, before we came up here that I brought two copies of her book. So one copy is the advanced reader copy, which I scribbled all over. And then the other one is her beautiful finished copy, which I can't stand to scribble into, but maybe I will upon a second read. Um, but just that that passage gets me every time because the idea of how you just play with those words, mother and nature and mother in nature, mother nature, just I feel like gets at such the heart of your book. Um, and also, I always like saying, I love hearing authors' w- uh, words in their own voice, but it's also really beautiful to hear your mother's voice, too, on the page. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to cry. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but um, I do want to open this up to the audience here. Hi. Thank you for this, for this beautiful creation, for this beautiful event. And What popped into my mind was what you talked about towards the beginning of your talk about uh, how you, when you write, you let this kind of, this book, what you're writing kind of flow through you. It's almost like you try not to control it. You try to make it flow through you and let the words come to you. I wonder how you balance that with this being such a personal story, your personal experience with your mom, with your family. How do you balance your own personal experience with this story that's flowing through you and wanting to be created? That's a really beautiful question. I think the way I might begin to answer it, at least I don't know if I have like a full answer of that, but how I might begin to answer it is for me in the writing process, there's, there's writing that feels very much for me and my own healing and kind of catharsis um, that, that I don't know, there's a discernment now that kind of happens in my body that that's like, okay, that's important for me to think about, to process, et cetera. And there's, there's a different kind of writing or, or perhaps even it's similar, but just drafts, further drafts and exploration of, of, a, of a certain piece that begins to have a sensation in my body that's uh, one that's a bit more expansive and, and really begins to feel kind of less about me and more about the feeling of a particular energy I feel I might be working with. Um, and I guess one way I might kind of even come a little more fine-tuned on that is it, it, it probably is like located in a different place in my body. Like that cathartic writing is probably, if I tune in really energetically, it probably feels more like head heavy. Like I'm thinking about it. I'm analyzing it. I'm trying to figure it out and find a path forward. The, the writing or the further drafts that feel like they're coming through me feel further down in my body. They feel like they're more 
in my kind of gut, I'd say, or, or even just a more expansive kind of fluidity moving throughout me. I can feel it as I'm talking about it right now. So I think there's, there's a discernment um, inside of that, that that's maybe what's coming, if I was to say it concretely, maybe what's coming from a mental cognitive space as opposed to what's coming from a physical space. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for that question. This might be a bit of a loaded question, but can you just explain a little bit what your relationship was like with your mom, maybe growing up and leading up to this book? Uh, of course. Yeah. I love it when everybody asks, like, what's a loaded question? Like, I'm a memorist. There's nothing loaded. Like, I, like it's all there and available for you. So um, I'm, I'm happy to answer that. Yeah. Our, our relationship growing up was, was a good one. She was supportive and a, and a cheerleader and an amazing mom. She was um, a demonstratively warm person. So her, her, the consistency, her physical body provided me throughout, you know, from, from in utero beyond was kind of incomparable. That being said, she had a different form of natural communication than me. I love words and have always loved words and have always been trying to figure out and translate the spaces and emotions and energy that I feel around me. And she was quite content not to translate and to just kind of sit in. And I found that to be, I think as a young person, kind of, I, I was angry about that. Um, why didn't you explain this? Why didn't you tell me this? Why didn't, why weren't there words for emotions? What, what the heck is all this stuff in my body and what do I do with it? Those kinds of things. Um, I, I think also just from a cultural standpoint, this really doesn't have as much to do with my mother as it does to uh, with kind of culture at large is that my parents were inside of a, a marriage that was a very kind of traditional father at work, mother at home. And so that there was, I, I saw culturally a different value in society placed on my mom and, and the women around me. And so as a young person that really, led me to be driven toward the masculine and wanting to seek approval and permission and be like as opposed and, and really kind of push down and and almost kind of reject suffocate etc anything that was from maybe more of a feminine energy and and the exploration of that really happened quite a bit actually in my first book which you know I know Ali that you that you've read and so that had less to do with the relationship but but because she was the primary example of that in front of me that was the e easiest target for my rage but that was not the appropriate target for my rage i like when the rage comes up i know that's just a silly thing to say but i have to say that like it's so palpable in a really i don't know if this sounds strange but like a really beautiful way in this book because like you said anger doesn't have to manifest itself in something ugly and and you know destructive it can be something that puts forth i don't know something beautiful so well i think this is this is one of the reasons why i was so drawn to take my mother into nature on this trip was because there would be a mirroring like where are those places that are raging and explosive that can mirror to us what this energy is but that we would look at and say we would be struck by the beauty of it like you know I don't know if anybody's ever been to Old Faithful, the kind of most most uh, famous, you know, geyser exploding. That's an explosive energy that that we may use to describe our own 
uh, rage or emotions, you know, something that just blew, you know, the top, she just blew the top off of her, you know. And we, in nature, we look at it and we're awe-inspired and we're taking pictures of it, you know, but when we experience that kind of energy moving inside of us, we kind of go like, that's not acceptable. And so I, I thought it was really important to go into nature with her with the volatility of what was inside of our relationship because I needed a teacher, you know, to show me how, how to move that kind of energy. Mm. No better teacher. Any other questions from the audience? Hi. Um, so in you talking about your learning about your relationship with your mom, um, I was struck by thinking about times in my life when I've actually learned a lot about how I was feeling about my mom through a reflection of um, my siblings and their interaction, or my sibling with interaction, interaction with my mom. And I was wondering if your learnings about your relationship with your mom through your siblings is something that you explored in this. That's a, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I have, um, thank you, Alex. I have um, three other siblings that, that I grew up with who are all older than me and one other biological sibling uh, who's kind of talked about and alluded to in this story who we did not grow up with, but we know now. And I made a really conscious decision, mostly to be honest, to kind of protect my siblings inside of an ongoing grief process to do my best to almost completely remove them from this story um, to get as clear as I could on the picture and the relationship between just my mother and I. Um, and so there's very little of them inside of this book, but there is a lot of them inside of my life. Right. And so, um, I think, I think all of them, I'm, I'm probably most similar to my dad just in, in nature about the love of words and the, you know, more expressive emotionally and the desire to explore and create, you know, conversations like this one. Um, just lost a bit of mic there. Thank you. And my siblings uh, are more so like my mom. They're, they're not going to express kind of verbally an emotion or a sense of pride, et cetera. And there's a part of me sometimes that battles with that. Um, but ultimately, I think to answer your question, it, it really shows me a lot more about, about my mother and kind of like there's a, there's a grace to them and, and a loyalty to them and a way that they kind of demonstratively show up that that doesn't need a lot of words. And I can't tell you, you know, specifically with my sister, I mean, I can't tell you how comforting it is just to, she, she's not going to phone me and say, hey, Steph, congratulations on the book. I read it. Here's the emotions that came up. I mean, that's just not going to be a conversation that we're going to have. But she sent me a, a, a meme the other day, a, a video actually of her own like dog howling, like here, announcing the book that Steph's just releasing, you know, and it's, it's, there's, it's this kind of demonstrative being with, like there's nobody who I'd rather kind of be in the same room with silently than her because there's, there's a quality of energy that so reminds me of my mother. And I, and I think like what a gift that she's given me all of these siblings who are so like her. And, and there's a choice you can make about, like, I could actually get angry. Like, I think there's a lot of people that are like, you remind me of her, and so I don't want you around, right? Because it angers me. It's, it's really the opposite for me. But that's been a journey. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. 
That's a really great question. Hi, Steph. That was absolutely lovely. Um, so my mother, we've talked before, my mother is also has Alzheimer's. And one of the conversation pieces we have is that everybody with Alzheimer's is on a journey. And so I think it's just really fascinating that you decided to take your mother, who's on her Alzheimer's journey, on a journey herself with you. And did that just kind of come together serendipitously? Or was that a thoughtful interaction that you wanted to make with her on her journey? Yeah, th- thank you, Janet. Um, and I, it really was an intuitive kind of hit. I mean, I, I, I had just done a trip actually through the corner of Yellowstone up into doing some backcountry skiing in, in Montana. And I came home and I literally like the bags were on the floor. I went to go take a shower and I just got hit with this idea of like, you're supposed to go back. And I thought, like, okay, like, wh- you know, when, how, with who? And I, and I got out of the shower, I walked into my husband's home office and I said, I think I'm supposed to go back to Yellowstone. I think I'm supposed to go with somebody. And almost at the same time, we both said your mother, my mother. And it, it surprised me actually at first. It would usually be, as I said, like my dad and I are two peas in a pod. Like we've traveled quite a bit together. And so I was, I was surprised, but it, it, it made enough sense that, you know, five minutes later, I, I've, you know, called them on FaceTime and said, would you like to go on a trip with me and she was very confused <laughs> like well you like sleep where this is weird um and and i think you know looking back i think you know i needed it to kind of begin the process of kind of shape-shifting into you know from maiden archetypally speaking into mother and i think inside of that process i needed to let you know, the, the clause that I have of like, be my mother, mother me, mother me, mother me, that we all, we all want that, kind of let that go so that she could evolve into the next phase of her own kind of initiatory process into, you know, whatever crone was going to look like for her. And so I, I think, I think the journey was, you know, m- multiple layers of that. And, and to, to kind of bluntly answer your question, it was, you know, it's, it's the idea of how do we let our life constellate? You know, there's an idea that hits you and it's a powerful enough kind of intuitive sense and it's very easy for us to analyze and get rational and logical and kind of brush those hits off. And I think I tend to be the kind of person that doesn't. Yeah. We probably have time for one more question. Right. Okay. Yeah. Steph, so you brought your mother to nature thinking that nature is going to influence your relationship with her, right? How has that changed your relationship with nature? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful question as well. I mean, I mean, I think now thinking about nature really as the predominant mirror, like our mothers, whether this is a Glennis McNichol quote, and I might get it wrong, but our mothers, whether we resemble them or not, are are the most reflective back to what they're going to reflect our identities back to us the most. I definitely bungled that quote, but it's something like that. It's the idea of it. And so I think what I what I ended up thinking was as my mom is she's going to drop that mirror for me and and not be able to reflect my identity back to me anymore. And will I have the courage to either pick the mirror up and, and begin to mother myself or bring in and request other people in my life to, to do that and nature. 
And, and I think the truest reflection is always going to be found in nature. It can't mask what it is. A cedar tree can only be a cedar tree. A flock of heron can only be a flock of heron, you know? And so when I'm questioning, you know, am I obscuring? Am I being authentic? Am I putting on a role or wearing a different mask? Have I stretched too far out of myself? Nature is going to be the place that I always am going to go. I think that's going to be the clearest reflection back. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful place to end. And also just thinking about too, we began by talking about mothering, you know, and that idea of mothering oneself and to what you're saying now, like not just mothering yourself, but finding different aspects, whether it's other people or nature or things or, you know, whatever it is in our lives that help us to kind of nurture ourselves into being. So I, I love that idea so much. Well, I know we're going to move to assigning, but, but what I want to say is like, this is an example of what that is. Like to ask a sister to say, hey, like there's this thing coming up. It's a pretty big deal. Like, this is a book. It's about my mother dying. Like, can you hold me? You know, can you have this conversation? Can you guide me through it? Like, it's just such a beautiful example of, of exactly what we've been talking about. So Joyce, thank you so much for holding and curating from the early days of like gathering at my house and letting me read you these pages to today. It's, it, it fills me with the kind of sense of like, even when things are going to fall apart, even when we lose our mothers or parts of the natural world, like if we do this for one another, we'll be okay. So thank you so much for that. And, and thank you so much to everyone here at, at third place that has made this possible. Thanks everybody. Third Place Books Ravenna presented this event with Steph Jagger and Joyce Chen on May 2nd. You'll find the full event and other great Seattle area talks on our website, kuow.org slash speakers. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. Good night. <laughs>